Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the great joys that my family and I have had over the past several decades is to spend several vacations in a particularly lush area of the south of France where we have some friends that have a home in the middle of one of the most beautiful wine-growing regions of the world. This area has been cultivated for wine, and there are vineyards that date back to Roman times there. And if you've never been to a vineyard, I would commend to you, if you ever have the opportunity, to go and visit. Because when you see a beautifully tended vineyard, it is remarkably beautiful. These straight rows, these carefully clipped vines, and the vines that if they've been tended and fertilized well, are overflowing with a harvest of grapes that they can scarcely hold on their stalks. It's interesting in France where vineyards are deeply prized that uh, one of the things the French government has recently done is to declare several vines in a particular vineyard a historic monument. It's the first time that a living thing has ever been classed as a historic monument in France. And in that area, some of the vineyards that produce very famous wines sell for as much as $10 million an acre. A beautiful vineyard is a remarkable thing, bearing fruit for years and years and years. The saddest thing, though, is to see an abandoned vineyard. In the midst of this lush greenery, to see one that's dry, looking like a desert with sticks that are the only things that remain of the grape-bearing stalks, fences that are broken down, and weeds that are covering everything. So today, we have this parable that Jesus tells in the temple in Jerusalem during the last week of his ministry before Holy Week happens. And Jesus is using this image of the vineyard. It is an image that would resonate strikingly with all of his Jewish hearers. Because all through the Old Testament, the image of the vineyard represents Israel. Israel is called God's vine. And there's a beautiful section in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, that is called the Song of the Vineyard. And in it, we see this beautiful story of God's loving care for his vineyard, the way that he's constructed the wall and built a watchtower and fertilized and tended the vines and all of that. And he talks about the vineyard being the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And it is this beautiful and tender passage until you get toward the end when you see that this vineyard does not bear good fruit. In fact, it bears bad fruit, yielding things that are unconsumable. And finally, the day of judgment comes and God mourns over the vineyard and its failure to fulfill its purpose. This vineyard image and this idea of Israel as God's vineyard is so much part of the national consciousness of the Jewish people, particularly in Jesus' day, that the temple in Jerusalem, the center of all their worship, had an enormous vine that was carved over the entrance. It was over 100 feet tall, 
and the clusters of grapes were made out of precious jewels, and the vine itself was covered in gold. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and it's mentioned by Tacitus and Josephus, and also in the Jewish Talmud. So coming into the temple to hear this parable, all of these hearers would have come under that vine. Jesus is telling this parable, and he has everyone's rapt attention because this image is one that is so much in the front of their faith as Jews. And he begins this parable of the vineyard keepers. And although that parable is about the first song of Isaiah is about the parable and the story of God's vineyard and its failure to produce fruit, Jesus' parable today is about the failure of the vineyard keepers, the failure of those who are in charge. This parable has a one-to-one correspondence that works this way. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard equals Israel. The tenant farmers equal Israel's leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. The servants equal the prophets, and the son equals Jesus himself. The great New Testament theologian N.T. Wright is a great fan of this parable, which he says is underappreciated. It is a parable that shows up prominently in Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And Wright puts it this way, this remarkable parable summarizes many of the key movements in the whole plot line of Scripture. This giving of special privileges to Israel is seen in the Old Testament. The sending of the prophets, the selfish disobedience of the Jewish leaders, the sending at last of God's own Son, the cruel rejection of the Son, the judgment on Israel, and the offer of the gospel to the Gentiles, Christ's establishment as the foundation cornerstone of the kingdom of God. That whole revelation of Scripture is encapsulated in this one short parable. And today, what I'd like us to do is to look at three aspects of this parable. First, the greatest privilege. The greatest privilege is to have the kingdom of God entrusted to you. Second, the greatest sin. The greatest sin is to reject the kingdom of God, to reject Jesus Christ, the one who comes to open that kingdom to us. And thirdly, the greatest Savior, to know Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of salvation. So to begin with the greatest privilege, to have the kingdom of God entrusted to us. Every now and then, Spider-Man gets it right. There's the great line in Spider-Man, with great privilege comes great responsibility. That is a biblical principle. And the great Bible teacher, William Taylor, put it this way, privilege entails responsibility. The more one receives, the more one must account for. They who had enjoyed so many more favors at the hand of God than any other nations ought to have been just so much better than other nations and ought to have cheerfully rendered to him the service which he sought, holy lives, loving service, cheerful and devoted loyalty to himself, good fruit. These were the fruits God sought as the return for the giving of his blessings to them. A steward 
is not something we think about very often today. Occasionally, you see someone called a steward in a restaurant. But in the ancient world, the steward was a very important job. It was an office that was held, an office of great responsibility. And it was an office whereby someone was entrusted with someone else's property, not only to safeguard it, but to multiply it to make it be fruitful. A steward is entrusted with someone else's property for a purpose. And here in this parable, we see Jesus saying, these tenants in the vineyard ignored the purpose for which they had been trusted with this vineyard, and they took it for themselves to enrich themselves, to build their comfort, to build their lives of privilege, and to refuse to share the good fruit, not only with God, but with the starving world that was all around them. What does stewardship mean for us today? Part of what it means is that Christian leaders and teachers and Christian laypeople have a duty to be faithful. We are not called, first and foremost, to be creative or innovative or speculative or cool. We are called to be faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted us with. The Word of God. We are to keep the faith, to preach the Word, to be faithful to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the church as it has been received in accordance with the Word of God. For those of you that were just in Rector's Forum, we are entrusted to bear witness. We are given a message. We are given a vineyard, and we are called to be stewards of that vineyard. It is so very important. One of the reasons it is so important is that we live in a culture and a world that are full of despair. People are dying of hunger, both literally and metaphorically. Hunger for meaning, for purpose, for joy. And we, as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the fruit We have the vineyard, and the question is, what will we do about it? That great Archbishop William Temple said it this way, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. And so the question for us is, what kind of fruit is there in our lives? Are we just building up fruit to store it in our own pantry, or are we bearing fruit that is life-giving for others? And for us, here is this congregation of St. Philip giving this beautiful building and this strategic place in a strategic city. What are we doing to be that lighthouse, gospel beacon that we are called to be? How are we bearing fruit with that with which we've been entrusted? The second aspect of this parable I'd like us to think about is the greatest sin. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture, But in fact, there's great sin in this parable that Jesus tells, and that sin is to reject the kingdom, which is to ultimately reject Jesus Christ. And you see in the parable that the sin unfolds over a long period of time, that God again and again, that vineyard owner sends messenger after messenger after messenger, and not only are they not respected, but they are beaten and wounded and thrown out and all sorts of horrible things until the son himself comes and then they choose to put him to death. That great 
English bishop of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, comments this way about this parable. This parable shows us the deep corruption of human nature. The conduct of the wicked tenant farmers is a vivid representation of man's dealings with God. It is a faithful picture of the history of the Jewish people and their leaders. In spite of privileges such as no nation ever had, in the face of warnings such as no people ever received, the Jewish leaders continued to rebel against God's lawful authority, refused to give him his rightful dues, rejected the counsel of his prophets, and at length crucified his only begotten son. And if you're like me, it is all too easy to say, that's right, those bad Pharisees, if I'd been there, I would have done better. Unfortunately, Bishop Ryle is very astute, and he doesn't stop with what I just read. He continues, this parable is a no less faithful picture of the history of all of the churches. Called as they were out of heathen darkness by infinite mercy, they have done nothing worthy of the vocation to which they were called. On the contrary, they have allowed false doctrines and wicked practices to spring up rankly among them. They have crucified Christ afresh. It is a mournful fact that in hardness, unbelief, superstition, and self-righteousness and indulgence, the Christian churches as a whole are little better than the Jewish leaders of our Lord's time. Ouch. I'd commend to you to open your service leaflet and look at this gospel text and look with me starting at verse 17. Jesus has been telling the story and then he zeroes in on the Jewish leaders. But Jesus looked straight at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Notice that Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone. And he's harking back to Psalm 118, which you might remember in the story of Palm Sunday is the psalm that the people lining the road with palm branches are chanting at Jesus. It is perhaps the most well-known messianic psalm in the Bible. It is all about that promised Messiah who is to come. And the Jewish leaders knew this, and it's part of the reason that when you look in the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday, you will see recorded in some places that the Jewish leaders told Jesus to get people to stop saying this because it's blasphemous unless Jesus is the Messiah, which, of course, they did not believe. And Jesus replies to them, if they did not say this, the stones themselves would shout it out. And Jesus, in this parable, refers us back to Psalm 118, and Psalm 118 captures the same image that is portrayed in the second chapter of Daniel, in Daniel's great vision. And in that, there's this vision with King Nebuchadnezzar, and there's this 
giant statue that is erected that represents all the powers of the Gentile nations. And it is strong and bold and impressive like nothing else in the kingdom of this world. But suddenly, this giant stone comes and it smashes that statue. And it smashes that statue into bits and dust. And that stone, my friends, is Jesus. Jesus, the cornerstone. And that stone in the vision grows and grows until it covers the whole earth. And that is the kingdom of God that is ushered in by Jesus Christ. It is a reminder to us that it is the greatest sin to reject Jesus, to be wise in our own eyes, like the people building the Tower of Babel, to think we can do it all without God. But the great good news is this third aspect after the greatest privilege and the greatest sin. And that third aspect is that we have the greatest Savior and that we have the privilege and gift to be able to know him as the cornerstone of salvation. The interesting thing about this, again, going back to N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars, he says that this parable is greatly underappreciated, that showing up in all three of these Gospels, we should pay more attention. And he says part of it is it really ought to be renamed. Instead of being called the parable of the wicked tenants or the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, it should be called the parable of God's Son sent at last. It is interesting because when you read in the book of Acts as the gospel has begun to take root after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we see that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, gives kind of a longer version of some of this material in the parable. He recounts the history of Israel's treatment of the prophets, the way that God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to proclaim the word of God, and they were all rejected. And Stephen finally cries out, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? And the sad thing is that in the face of Jesus's love and of his mercy and the incredible sacrifice so many miss his invitation and fail to acknowledge him and know him as the cornerstone of salvation. The New Testament scholar Kent Hughes comments this way about the parable. Yet the owner of this vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The soliloquy of the Father that we hear in this parable is a deliberate echo of what we hear at Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my Son. Listen to him. This is my Son whom I love. This is my beloved Son. We must not miss the huge distinction that Jesus makes in this parable between himself and all the other prophets and religious teachers. The prophets were only servants, but Jesus is the Son. The leaders of Israel were tenants, but Jesus was the heir and joint owner with the Father. And in the face of Israel's hard-heartedness, God persisted 
and persisted and persisted. One prophet after another was abused, rejected. You can read the sad history of all of it in Hebrews chapter 11. Those prophets that kept the faith in the face of persecution and even death. Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. But instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant, prophet after prophet, and as we heard in records from John the Baptist, the last of these, who also is persecuted and put to death. Rebukes, insults, beatings, deaths did not stop God's relentless loving pursuit. And finally, he sent his son, Jesus. That great preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, if you reject Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing you. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Jesus has done what the prophets could not do, what the temple could not do, even with its glorious golden vine and jeweled clusters of grapes. Jesus has come to be the true vine. He tells us in John 15 that he is the true vine. He is the perfect fruitful vine and fruitful vineyard that gives the fruit of eternal life to all who will come to him. No matter how we have fallen short, rejected his word, squandered his gifts, he opens wide his arms on the hard wood of the cross in a saving embrace that sinners who will may come within his reach. And the question for us is, will we come? He bids us to come, no matter how we have fallen short, no matter how we have squandered the gifts he's given, no matter how we have sinned and done it deliberately and done it over and over and over again, no matter how we have hurt others, no matter how we may have rejected him in the past, he calls us through his mercy and through his love to come back to him. As we walk this path of Holy Week toward the cross where Jesus gave his life, and bled on the cross that we might come within that reach of his saving embrace. The question is, will we come? Will we step forward to let him embrace us? Will we give our hearts to him, the one who loves us more than we can ever imagine, despite our unworthiness? Will we follow the one who loves us so? In a few minutes, we're going to sing one of the great hymns of the church, and can it be? And I want to close with these words from Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you our pride, our self-importance, 
the way that we have been poor stewards and made mockery of the things of your kingdom. Lord, we have been entrusted with the greatest privilege to hold to that kingdom in jars of clay. We have seen the greatest sin to reject Jesus Christ, and you have made known to us the greatest Savior, Jesus, who is the cornerstone of salvation. Lord, we pray that as we walk the path of Holy Week toward the cross, that we would bring our hearts to him, that he might draw us within the reach of his saving embrace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.